You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Tom recently traveled to Europe, where in between fresh pasta, morning runs, and sightseeing, he stopped in Paris to visit Daniel Kerr, lower school director at the American School of Paris. Daniel's a Canadian, uh, but he decided to go to college in Maine and to work off some of his student debt. He accepted a teaching position in Abu Dhabi, where he met a counselor also from Nova Scotia who became his wife. They really enjoyed traveling extensively while they taught in Abu Dhabi and became hooked on international education. They accepted positions at the Jakarta International School where they taught for seven years. Then Dan led a school in Shanghai and after that in Ecuador and now in Paris. When I asked Dan about this nomadic lifestyle, he said he really enjoyed uh, becoming a citizen of the world. He speaks five languages. His kids, who are 10 and 12, have visited two dozen countries. It's safe to say that uh, the Kerr family is really hooked on the benefits of international education. Tim Stewart, school head in Ethiopia and international leader on professional learning communities, said Dan is one of the most innovative international educators out there. Dan's work is also featured in Tim's upcoming book on personalized learning. Tom sat down with Daniel to learn more about the life of an international educator and about the American school. Daniel Kerr. Welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Hey, thanks. Nice to so, be here. This is fun. We, we had a great quick uh, tour of the American school in Paris. Yeah, it's uh, my first experience here. I've been here six months. And uh, for six months on the job. Six months on the job. So you are, you've been at this now 20 years. You're, you're officially a international educator. I am a lifer. Yeah, point of no uh, return. Where did, where did you go to high school? So I grew up in the east coast of Canada, Nova Scotia, Prince Andrew High School in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. I spent my first 18 years there, and I was very much a late bloomer when it came to education. Uh, Graduated from Dalhousie University in the early 90s and didn't really know what what I wanted to do, so I took the next four or five years and just traveled the world. So how did you get to Abu Dhabi? Well, so I went back to get my education degree in Maine. And being Canadian, I came out about a billion dollars in debt. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to go try to pay those off. And I heard about places up north in Canada or overseas and lucked in serendipitously to this job in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is my first international gig. It's interesting. That's why a lot of teachers will go to the Middle East. Yep. Uh, really attractive salaries, housing stipend. Yeah, honestly, it's a great jumping off point for people who want to make a move internationally with very little experience. I think ultimately you use that uh, as a jumping ground to, you know, to, 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 to get to different, different schools throughout the world, but the Middle East is a great first step. And how did you get from uh, Abu Dhabi to Jakarta? Yeah, so Abu Dhabi, I met my wife, who's also an educator, high school counselor, middle school counselor here. And, you know, funny enough, we met each other in Abu Dhabi, but we're from an hour and a half away from each other in Nova Scotia. So that was kind of the oh. uh, best thing that ever happened to me. We, we, were, at, we were at schools in Abu Dhabi that... Um, that were great little starter schools, but weren't exactly, we felt we, we wanted more out of out of an organization. Right. And we had heard about these job fairs through Search Associates, and we went to a, a search fair in KL, Kuala Lumpur, it's now the Bangkok Fair, 
we wanted to see what was out there. We figured we wouldn't go back to Canada and we'd try international living. And we interviewed it like you do. We interviewed in Seoul and in China and all of a sudden Jakarta International School said yes to us and we felt like we won the lottery. I kid you not. It was like going to a tier one top you know, school in the world about blew my mind. Uh, that's where you met uh, Tim Stewart. That's where I met Tim. Who was and Tim was head of high school there? He was the high school principal there. And he came in um, a couple of years after I arrived, but quickly made his mark and became not only a great friend, but, you know, arguably the biggest mentor I've ever had in education was, is Tim. And we've, con- we've connected and kept a wonderful relationship for the last decade now. We'll come back to Tim. Um, your first school leadership role was in China. Yeah, the funny thing about Jakarta International School is it's such a such an amazing organization that everybody was about as ready to jump into administration as I was. And there just weren't were the openings. I went for a couple of jobs there in Jakarta, I just didn't get them. And an ex-principal, an ex-vice uh, principal in Jakarta had left to become a principal in Shanghai and heard that I was interviewing for leadership roles and reached out to me. Um, and it was at the time where we had spent seven years there, we had our kids there. I was very much looking to get into leadership, and we, I flew to Shanghai, interviewed, and, and got a job as an upper school vice principal at Shanghai Community International School, and that was my first jump into administration. Loved it immediately. So uh, there you're dealing with, with um, a really diverse group of expats in, in China. That was actually the, the, big, the most international school that I've ever been at. It was upwards of 65 different nationalities, all from all over the world. And it was back in between 2010 and 2014 where Shanghai was absolutely exploding. Um, it, just, it was just after the Olympics and uh, we just had Expo. I mean, it was the place to be for organizations to set up shop. And what an amazing experience for an international school educator to have that kind of community to, make, to get his hands um, on. It was something else. So how long were you in Shanghai? Four years. And then how'd you get to Ecuador? Well, so I, I parlayed the upper school vice principalship into a middle school principalship after my first year, and, and that was that was exciting. Um, ultimately, you know, the pollution levels there were really tricky for us, especially with young kids. So we were just looking for a better quality of life. And again, um, through the principal's training center, the PTC, I had met uh, a leader in Ecuador at Academia Cotopaxi um, named Paula Pereira, and we had stayed in touch. So I saw just happening, happened to look at uh, some of these search websites, saw that a job opened up that was perfect for my skill set. I had been an elementary school teacher from grades three up. I had been a middle school principal. And this job that was open was an intermediate division principal, grades three to eight, which took upper elementary and middle school, meshed them together. And I couldn't believe it. I almost fell off my chair. It was such a perfect job for me. So I threw my hat in the ring and ended up getting that job. And we were so excited about a move to a place. I mean, I had never been south of Mexico, so this was an amazing opportunity for me and my family. How many languages would you say you have at least beginning uh, sort of proficiency? Uh, five. Wow. And and now, it, it, if it was at least partially accidental that you went international uh, in part to pay off your debt, you're you're now officially a, an international educator. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to talk about that. What what is that life like? And when when did you look up and realize that that's you know the profession that's who you had become? 
Well, I think ultimately, looking back on it, and I would say, say that it still is, international education, I think, is the best kept secret out there for, for educators. I mean, it's interesting, the perspective from North America, at least in my, in my view, I tell people what I do, and they automatically think I teach English in Japan. They have no idea the scope and what's out there for, uh, for families and for kids with regards to true, amazing schools operating in all these countries around the world. So I did. I went over there for two years. I was going to get a little bit of money and I was going to come back. But then you start seeing the opportunities that you have um, for professional development. Because the cool thing about international schools is they're not necessarily tied to um, ministry um, expectations or, or tenure or unions. So you can really have a lot more freedom to play and to try these new things. And I started to get a sense of that. And I also saw that how what an amazing life this would be for for my for my own kids. I mean, my kids just right now to go off topic a little bit. They've been, they're going to hit. They have they're they're twelve years old and ten years old. They've been to five continents and twenty five countries already. Wow! And to give that kind of gift to my own children um, is something that I just never thought I'd be able to do until I hit the world of international education. Um, Jakarta was a really big thing for me because when I saw what could, what was happening when you go to a tier one school like that, that are bringing in all these amazing people to talk about what's current in education, um, looking deep into Solution Tree and all these amazing Marzano, I mean, just crazy stuff that would be, was put in front of me as a young educator. I couldn't believe it. And I was learning and learning and learning. And I just, and then on my off time, I would go travel to Australia or I'd go to Nepal or I'd go to Kenya for a safari. And I just said, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to live this kind of life back home. Where, where do you call home? Yeah, well, we have, a, we have a home in Prince Edward Island, Canada that we go home to every summer. We built a little log home there, and that's our Canadiana for our kids. Right. Our kids think that Canada's Club Med. I mean, they don't, they don't know <laughs> winter, right? I mean, we're going to go home for the third time ever, in, or third time in 20 years this Christmas. We're praying for a white Christmas because they just don't know it. Right. So that's home for us, East Coast of Canada, very much. So you've, you've taught and led in, in a half a dozen of these um, international schools, and you've talked a little bit about this, but um, describe uh, some of the best teaching conditions that you've seen in international schools. What, what's a, a, a really good setup for a teacher in an international school? Well, I think... I've seen it over the last three stints that I've been in, including this one, but it started again. I'm going to go back to Jakarta because I think that was a really nice model. Their approach to collaboration and professional learning communities was they got into that very, very early. And I want to say Jakarta and Singapore are probably one of the two who really have been doing it with fidelity over the last decade. And when you look at teachers being empowered to go watch other teachers teach or to um, do book talks together or to look at videotaping themselves in the classroom or to sitting down together and looking at data and how to, how to use data to affect teacher instruction, student learning. Those kinds of things um, were happening in the mid 2000s back in Jakarta and talk about teacher growth and the best yeah. professional development are, is, is right at your fingertips uh, in your, in your faculty. But often schools don't leverage that and they spend thousands and thousands of dollars to bring a consultant in when they have, the expertise just next door in the classroom. Right. So they opened up the doors there and they really encouraged a collaborative sense of community. 
Now, as you and know, that, that, that must have been so really long. that was important for you and for for Tim. That uh, I think that was the the foundational experience that led to his book on professional learning communities in yep. uh, international schools and uh, and the new one that you contributed to on uh, uh, personalized learning. Well, what's really neat about what what we what what Tim and Jakarta did back then, and to what it's morphed into now, and and is that it was the professional learning community is, is is looking at it from a teacher lens and getting together and collaborating with each other and looking what's best for kids. I think that the next step to that and what I wrote about in the, in the book and what Tim has, has written about in, in, with all his contributors and the focus of his book was how can you take that model down to the student level and have kids talk about their own learning in professional learning groups, student learning communities, if you will, right. right? To look at their own data, to self and peer assess to talk about, okay, if I know, if I understand this, where can I go next in my learning? How can I troubleshoot when I get stuck? How can I, how can I lead my own learning and identify areas of strength and passion which translate off across disciplines? And you know, it's surprising to me and to Tim when we talked about it, how this, this just wasn't, it just hasn't been done in a lot of schools. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's really profound. And we, we saw the beginning of that here on our, our tour at uh, American School of Paris. Yeah, we did, we did it really well. Academia Cotopaxi last year in Ecuador, we, uh, myself and, a, and my vice principal at the time, Brett Olson, uh, who's a principal now in Surabaya, we led this thing that I wrote about called I Learn, which is doing just that. And we had not only an opportunity for kids to lead their own learning through student learning communities, but we had, it was also coupled with a full inclusion model. So we had kids, um, and ultimately, one of the challenges we have in international schools, which is part and parcel to all North American education is this, that they let in everybody. I mean, everybody with any learning difference at all goes to a public school and they're well resourced and they're, you know, but in international schools, we're, we lag behind a little bit in that. So in academic Cotopaxi, we had kids of all different learning styles and learning differences coming together in a fully inclusive, inclusive, inclusive model, leaving their learning. So true differentiation is fine. So it was a wonderful experience. And that's the kind of stuff that we're excited to do here in Paris. For more on international education, read our report on Creating the Future of Learning, a story of the transformation of the Singapore American School. We'll link it in the show notes below and on our blog. What's it like to lead an international school? Hmm. Do, you, you have, do you have more teacher turnover? Yes. And does that make it hard to create a really cohesive plan and team? Well, my answer is yes, except for Paris, <laughs> interestingly enough, because usually I'm used to, at this time of the year, I'm off at recruiting fairs where I'm replacing 25% of my faculty right. because they stay. I think they did a study that the best you can get is like, if you can get five or six years out of a teacher before they move on, you can really affect meaningful change. But I would always struggle to keep people a fourth year. So that was a challenge, but you come to Paris and nobody ever leaves this place. And for good reason. I mean, what, top three cities in the world, um, an amazing school with some really exciting energy around it. And um, people just don't go. I haven't had to hire in two years. Nobody left last year. Nobody left and leaves leaving this year. And there's some advantages and disadvantages to that, right. right? I mean, to have people here and to have that kind of continuity to really understand the community and to be here to, to see change through is exciting. But if you don't 
drive change, people can get very complacent and rest on their laurels and become and stay the same teacher they were in 1999 as as they are now in 2017. So there's an opportunity there. You just have to we just have to leverage it right. And therein lies the challenge. I think. Right. As we were discussing with uh, Jeff, the middle school principal, some of these shifts take uh, a, a community conversation mm-hmm. w- with your your parent community to really draw out how the world has changed and uh, the, the kind of workforce that um, young people are headed for today. And as a result of those changes, what the learning environment ought to look like. Yeah, it's the... I mean, we're really lucky here that we have, um, you know, we have uh, a core group of, of educators led by Mark Officer, head of school, Jeff Lippman, Aaron Hubbard, Carlene Halali, Brian Brazil. We get together and we talk really about how we can move this school forward in, in, in ways that are really exciting, but also the challenges that are part and parcel to that. And the parent community is very much right. a community that we need to educate because they all expect they know what they know because they went through their school experience. Um, they don't necessarily, they're not home reading educational journals or staying up to uh, current practice. So they don't understand the why behind the change. And it takes a lot of time to move and to show that, okay, if you're going to make a change, show me three years of how it doesn't affect student data and student learning. But nobody wants to be that guinea pig year because this is their only year in ninth grade and that this means so much or it's only right. year in 11th grade and they can't That's room. particularly important here because you have a lot of kids that take advantage of French education in through middle school and then become a high school student. Then the one goal is to get them into a selective U.S. university. It's absolutely right. And it's all the idea from the parent community and maybe some teachers too is that academic achievement is king. And what we're starting to really get our heads around and what we believe in is that success shows its, face, shows its face in so many different areas. And it's not just academic achievements. That's one piece of it. And I think we want to get to a more holistic approach to what success and learning looks like for kids and maybe make more of a portfolio model where kids can really be successful at service learning and, and sports and, you know, all these other different activities um, that go into making this, them these well-rounded, great people for our world that have, you know, a bedside manner and not just a straight A student who doesn't really know what to do with that when it comes to social emotional understanding. Uh, this this uh, the American School of Paris is obviously a, a great school with a great tradition um, of, of academic success. But what, what would you say uh, the leadership team is trying to get better at here? I think we there's two things that are really on our plate, and I think one of them is to is to think about this is an inclusive model. I think we want to open our doors to more kids with learning differences. We all believe that that's the right thing to do. We all believe that every child can learn. And we want over the next couple of years to bring inclusion to life at our school and to not say no to anybody and to feel like we're well-resourced and we can accept anybody who comes on, uh, to our door, not have to split up families. And ultimately, kids with learning differences Will, grow, go, will go on to rule the world. I mean, it's these non-cookie-cutter kids that change the world so quickly. And so we need to get as many of those into the school as possible. And it's funny how a couple of kids with some different learning, different, uh, different learning differences can absolutely change the community and culture so yeah. quickly. In a, in so a super positive way. Super positive yeah. way. So I think it, it makes us better educators. Yeah, I mean, 
ultimately, there there are teachers. I mean, I think I learn more lessons from kids every day than anybody ever learned from me. Right. So I think we just have to be open to putting them in a position where they can lead and they can teach and we can sort of facilitate and go along that journey with right. them. So what's number two on and the And then list? the second thing I think for us is, is like I just mentioned a while ago, is to get this community to see student success as something other than academic achievement. And I think that we've been so good at American School of Paris. We've been getting kids into the best schools in the world for so long. Um, and I think we still do that, particularly the way that the paradigm is shifting with higher education, with kids who aren't necessarily traditionally book smart or traditionally school smart. There's still lots of ways for those kids to find their successful avenues and still get into great schools of fit for them in the future. So I think sort of broadening our understanding as a community of what success looks like as a kid is another big goal for us. We saw some great uh, design labs, design thinking labs, both in uh, the intermediate and the middle grade level. Um, what's what's that about? Well, so we we have these new, we had this new build, and we very much are looking at spaces um, like I've talked about for kids. Really, like I said, to lead their own learning and to find ways to bring technology into the forefront and use that as a as a learning opportunity for kids. Uh, there's a big makerspace movement that's been happening that we want to, you know, jump on board with uh, for kids to look how to code and to bring in Raspberry Pis and Ollies and little bits and really dig into um, creativity and find, you know, because kids are so passionate about not only technology, but um, innovation. And I think we want to provide spaces for them to go after those two things. Curricular wise, our goal is now to bring in or to have conversations around design thinking, around project-based learning, transdisciplinary education, service learning, and mentorships in the community. And all of those things that, you know, have been around for so long, but we just need to bring them back and, and give kids the opportunity to be empowered to go after that. And we have the spaces now for it. Uh, what, as we uh, wrap this up, what should American educators know about international educators? Hmm. Is, is this uh, a field that you'd encourage teachers to look at? Yeah, it, it is absolutely. I'll give the, the hard sell on that right now. I think with, international, with, edu, which, with educators, like I said before, it's the best kept secret out there. The wonderful thing about education internationally is that not only can you find a place where you're free to take risks and to challenge your own professional learning, professional development. You're with like-minded educators who also love to travel. They are absolutely citizens of the world. It's a diverse, multicultural, melting pot um, of a community where, you know, it's not unheard of to be in a classroom with 15 different nationalities. And then you get a break and you zip off to Marrakesh or you zip off to Nepal. And you, you work hard, but you play hard, and you have Europe at your fingertips, and you can make a really good living. I mean, a lot of these international schools pay your taxes, so the money that you make is, for the most part, disposable income. And you can really make a wonderful life out of international education. If you have a sense of wanderlust, and you love to teach and be around kids, yeah. you'll never find a better fit than international it education. It sounds like it's been uh, a great experience for your family as well. It sure has. I mean, right? It's 20 years, and... Past the point of no return, we'll do this until I can't do it any longer. Would you say you've learned uh, anything about North America by leaving it and sort of observing it from a distance? 
yeah, you know what? The CNN effect is really, really powerful. And I've learned that um, not only from my own uh, friends and family from back home, but it's interesting. You know, I have such a, a better sense of the world. I think I grew up in such a sheltered community where I didn't, I didn't have access to other cultures and other races and other religions. It was really, but now I, I, you know, it's everywhere I look all the time. And I got so used to not even hearing the mosque, for example. And North America, I think I have a greater appreciation of when you come, it's the small community life that is North America. When I see small little tiny communities where I'm from, there's such a sense of pride and community there that I think we can bring and instill here as well. I think that sense of community is something that I'm very, is very much in me because of my upbringing. And I think that that's what North America can also gives to international school education. That sense of community is tight and great schools, international schools also have that. Dan Kerr, American School of Paris. Thanks uh, so much for the tour. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. A big thanks to Daniel for giving Tom a tour. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica. And Tom. Signing off.